third time's a charm, right? God, I hope so. Maybe we'll have to uh, re-record this a fourth time. Who knows? Our lucky day. Oh, Saw, if you are with us, please. (laughs) I've seen enough faces. I get it. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 35, Pirates and Captives. We jump right in where we left off with Wintrow and Kyle. They're being chased down by pirates. The storm is kind of passing at this moment, and Kyle is very upset at this, saying, like, we can still outrun them, please, like, we gotta get away, we gotta work together. With Wintrow at the helm, we have a chance. And Sa'adar, of course, is very happy because he recognizes the the pirate flag, the raven insignia, and knows this is Kennet coming to free all of the slaves that are on ship and kill all of the slavers. He also is giddy about the idea that the rest of the slavers, because if you remember, there's only three crew, original crew members left, that these three will be executed soon and he is excited about that seems excited about that and is also saying that saw truly has provided so that uh that news is spreading through the ship like wildfire they say and wintrow is feeling some apprehension but also exhaustion from the previous night as marietta pulls up alongside grapples and ties the two ships together, and pirates start swarming over the rails. However, he also feels a kind of relief as he sees them take over her, over Vivacia's deck, and expertly start reefing the sails, things like that. These pirates were taking over his ship, but at least they moved competently. She was in the hands of true seamen. The relief was short-lived, as a moment later, bodies began to splash overboard. The white serpent that Wintrow had supposed left far behind in the storm suddenly broke up to the surface to gape eagerly for the corpses. Several others, more gaudily colored, lifted their heads at a distance to regard the ship both warily and curiously. One suddenly lifted a great crest around its neck and flourished its head with a challenging bellow. Vivacia gave an incoherent cry at the sight of them. No, get them away, she cried out. Then... Not Gantry, no. Do not give him to the foul things. Wintrow, make them stop. Make them stop. The only response was a terrible laughter. So Vivacia isn't getting listened to. She's still freaked out by the serpents. And now we have Mulkin's Tangle with Shriver and Caesarea poking their heads out at all of the sudden commotion as well. Right. And the bodies being thrown are those that lost their life during the overtaking of the ship at this point so it's all people who are already not with us any longer and I feel really bad in this moment because there is such a sense of helplessness from Wintrow and I think that's kind of where Wintrow stays a lot of the time is this overwhelming sense of helplessness but in this moment it really is helpless it's him versus an entire ship full of people who are excited to have these pirates come on board. There's nothing he can do. He has to just stay at the helm and make sure that the boat doesn't 
go into the rocks. And then on top of that, he feels has to feel guilty because he's a little bit relieved that at least now competent sailors are back on board and it's not all on his shoulders to make sure that Vivacia doesn't sink. Right. But with that, with the people coming on board and getting rid of the bodies, like you said, we have Vivacia who is terrified, who is not being respected and isn't being really listened to. And I feel really bad. It's just there's all these people on board and they have no idea what a live ship is. They, I don't think, can grasp how important it is to maybe listen to her. <laughs> right. And so Wintrow feels that it is his responsibility to go to her and tells his father, who's still standing next to him, to stay here. I have to go to Vivacia to my ship. And he says, there's no sense in bothering. You've already lost her. You listen to that priest and let the pirates just board her. You just stood here and let the pirates take her. Just as last night, you did nothing to warn us when the slaves rose against us. He shook his head. For a time, last night, I thought I had misjudged you, but I was right all along. Just as I stood by and did nothing as you changed my ship into a slaver, Wintrow pointed out bitterly. He looked his father up and down slowly. I fear I was right too. And he walks off without a backwards glance, trying to convince himself that he's just leaving that man there because he has to go to his ship. He did not leave the man there alone and injured because he hated his father. He did not leave him there half hoping someone would kill him. He only did it because the ship needed him. He moved towards the foredeck. When he reached the waist, he tried to thread his way inconspicuously through the gathered slaves there. So in his head, he's just trying to convince himself like, yes, I hate my father now, but I, I'm not abandoning him here alone, you know, previous slaver. In the midst of all these freed slaves and pirates, I'm just, I just need to go to my ship. That's it. That's the only reason I'm walking away from him. Right. And I mean, tensions are really high. Poor Wintro is getting berated by Kyle for something that is outside of his control once again. And it's just crazy to me that Kyle's sitting here looking at this situation and being like, you could have done something. What? what could he have done? He was steering the ship. That is all he had control of. That's not, that doesn't control the speed of the ship. That doesn't control other people doing what he tells them to do. And everybody else was slowing down the ship so they could get boarded by pirates. That is not on Wintrow. There is nothing he could have done in that situation. Just like the situation Wintrow brings up saying, you know what? It's just like when I stood by and did nothing and you turned the ship into a slaver. Which, again, he would have had no power to stop anyway. But I also think it's important because this is the first time out loud he is acknowledging Vivacia as his ship. But yeah. The, he is really committing to this connection with Vivacia. He already earlier in his mind commented on Vivacia as his ship, but now he's really cementing that in reality by saying it out loud and to his father who is technically the owner maybe a little bit too late but definitely <laughs> still <laughs> still they've uh, came through tragedy together here and he walks through the tragedy on board witnessing all of the slaves kind of walking up from below decks shuffling around he says they kind of are moving like cattle because not only was their freedom taken, their humanity was taken. It'll take a while for them to regain that back. 
So he's jumping from one group to another, trying to make his way up to the foredeck and to Vivacia, which is his primary concern. He can't really spare much thought for these people at the, at the moment. And not only that, but the people that he's walking by, he's noticing some of them have already pilfered through the crew's belongings and are wearing better clothing. So that would have to be a lot of different emotions happening at once, because even if he didn't like all of the crew and didn't even know most of them well because they were new crew, it's still people that he worked with that were alive, that he had no intention of seeing dead. And it's just more evidence of what has happened. And so seeing these people and recognizing that these people are horribly scarred and they don't deserve what has happened to them. And it's really sad to see them shuffling around in this state. It's still a little bit crazy to see that juxtaposition with people that he cared about clothing on them. So I think that's just a really good, it's a really good sense of kind of walking through a haze. Yeah. And as he passes by, a main group of people with Saadar dressing three pirates. He also has to think, you know, this can't be my concern right now. I have to ignore it. I have to move on. Vivacia is number one because of that previous affirmation that this is now his ship. So he's heading up towards the front, the foredeck. He gets to a ladder. And as he's climbing up, he hears Saadar addressing those three pirates saying, Fetch Captain Haven here, which halts for an instant and then scurries up quickly to talk to Vivacia. He does mention that as he's passing before the Captain Haven remark that none of the pirates look very impressed by Sa'adar and especially the tall man who looked sickened by his speech, which is Kenneth and it's the first view of Kenneth that we get. Vivacia gasps, Wintrow, and she turns to him, and they link together and, and put their minds together with touch as well. And she says, so many are dead, so many died last night, and what will become of us now? I don't know, he told her truthfully, but I promise that of my own will, I will never leave you again, and I will do all I can to stop any further killing. But you have to help me, you must. How? No one listens to me. I'm nothing to them. You are everything to me. Be strong. Be brave. He hears an animalistic roar down on deck, and he doesn't need to turn to know what it is because he heard the previous command, and he says, They have my father down there. We have to keep him alive. Why? The sudden harshness in her voice was chilling. Because I promised him I would try. He helped me through the night. He stood by me and you. Despite all that is between us, he helped me keep you off the rocks. Wintrow took a breath. And because of what it would do to me if I just stood by and allowed them to kill my father. Because of who that would make me. Vivacia says there's nothing we can do. I couldn't save Gantry, or Mild, or Findo, even for the sake of his fiddling. I can't do anything. These slaves have suffered a lot, but for all of that, they have only learned to disregard suffering. Pain is the coin they use now in all their transactions. Nothing else reaches them. Nothing else will satisfy them. An edge of hysteria was creeping into her voice. And that is what they fill me with. Their own pain and their hunger for pain and vivacia. 
he said gently, and then more firmly. Ship, you sent me below to recall who I was. I know you did, and you were right. You were right to do so. Now recall who you are and who has sailed you. Recall all you know of courage. We will need it. This is such a heartbreaking moment because Vivacia is really struggling here. I think before now, there wasn't really time to take count of what had actually been happening on deck because her life was in danger. She was going right. to go down in the waves. There wasn't time to focus on the pain or think about the things happening around her. It clearly in the last chapter was affecting how she was communicating and what she was feeling. It was heightening the fear. It was heightening everything, but she was able to channel that into paying attention to where they're going and helping, helping Wintrow figure out how to steer them in a safe manner. So having that happen, really took away the blunt of the horribleness that was happening on board. And now we have the aftermath of everything's calmed down. Yeah. There's time to think about what actually happened. There's time for her to feel how the people on board are feeling. And I think that's the worst part is because she is a live ship, she is absorbing their feelings and their thoughts. And it's not as clear as a family member. We know live ships can't get as clear of a picture, but there's so many slaves on board or previous slaves now that they're freed that they are filling her and she can feel the general sense of pain and misery. And it would be really hard, especially because she is such a new ship, to anchor herself in this form of herself because she doesn't even know who that is. And before last night, she didn't even have Wintrow to grasp onto. It's just really this hard moment of flailing and figuring out who she is and what to do next. Right. And so it's amazing that Wintrow comes in and can set her fears aside and say, hey, this is what we're focusing on now. We can't wallow in that. We can't focus on that pain. We have to move forward. You have to think about yourself in this moment to get out of that. And that's great. But like we said, just a little bit earlier, it's a little bit too late now. This is helpful in this moment, but it's not something that's going to deepen their connection because they have too much history of Wintro not helping her in these situations. That I think that it just, the gap is too far to reach across that easily. So at that moment, Wintrow hears Sa'adar's command, saying, Wintrow, come forth. Your father claims you will speak for him. He has to take a moment, a couple breaths to center himself. And again, he hears Sa'adar's voice saying out, Do not think you can hide yourself. Come out. Captain Kennet commands it. Wintrow pushed the hair back from his eyes, stood as tall as he could. He walked to the edge of the foredeck and looked down on them all. No one commands me on the deck of my own ship. He threw the words down and waited to see what would happen. Your ship? You, made a slave by your father's own hand. Claim this ship is yours? It was Sa'adar who spoke, not one of the pirates. Wintrow took heart. So he doesn't address Sa'adar then. 
but addresses the pirates themselves, saying, I claim this ship, and this ship claims me, by right of blood. And if you think that true claim can be disputed, ask my father how well he succeeded at it. The live ship Vivacia is mine. Seize him and bring him here, Sa'adar Adar ordered his map faces disgustedly. Touch him and you all die. Vivacia's tone was no longer that of a frightened child, but that of an outraged matriarch. Even anchored and grappled as she was, she contrived to put a rock in her decks. Doubt it not, she roared out suddenly. You have soaked me with your filth, and I have not complained. You have spilled blood on my decks. Blood and deaths I must carry with me forever, and I have not stirred against you. But harm Wintrow and my vengeance will know no end. No end save your deaths. The rocking increased, a marked motion that Marietta did not match. Then the most unnerving thing to Wintrow of all, due to her outburst and that commotion, serpents' heads poke out, out of the sea, trumpeting questioningly. And a smaller one darted forward suddenly to dare an attack at the white one who screamed and slashed at it with myriad teeth. Cries of fear arose from Vivacious' deck as slaves retreated from the railings and from the foredeck. Questioning tones of their cries, Wintrow could surmise that few of them had any understanding of what the live ship was. So here we have Wintrow confronting himself, the crew, the remaining crew, the slaves, the pirates, and saying, Vivacia is mine. You cannot do anything to separate us. Not addressing Sa'adar, who's making his own grasp of power in the play for that, but also to himself and to Vivacia, saying it out loud. We are connected forevermore. And then you have all these slaves with Vivacia backing him up. All of these slaves are like, what is that loud voice? Why are we rocking back and forth when there's no waves and the other ship isn't? And why are the serpents all of a sudden getting very agitated and attacking one another? So they're terrified of what's happening. Yeah, it's... It's this very interesting moment because as a first-time reader, I don't think that you would know how much Kenneth knows about the interworking of a live ship. We know that he knows of them and wants one for his own, but there's this tenseness happening right now for first-time readers of these people don't know what a live ship is. They don't understand that you need blood relation on board. They don't understand the practices and there's this real danger that Wintrow could be killed in this and that he could be tossed aside without them even knowing that he is needed to make the boat work in a sense. And so having Vivacia say, I will kill everyone on board if you touch Wintrow at all is really coming out of nowhere for these other people, this crowd, yeah. they don't understand what's happening. And I think that ignorance helps boost the confidence of people like Sa Adar and maybe even Etta that it's just all talk. It's just a magic ship that can talk. Yeah, maybe. You know, I don't think they quite understand how much control she has, but she is trying to show them, you know, she's not just a figurehead that can talk. She has control over the boat. And I don't know. It's this whole scene. I just feel really bad because we have Wintrow who has to stand and face everyone in this moment where his life is on the line. So there's that, that kind of tension 
amongst everyone with Winter just standing above everything, yelling down at them that this is his ship. And Etta makes the first move. And from Winter's point of view, he's never seen Etta. So he describes her as someone who he has never seen her like before. She was tall and lean, her hair cropped close. The rich fabric of her skirts and loose shirt were soaked to her body as if she had stood watch on deck all night. Yet she looked no more bedraggled than a wet tigress would. She landed with a thud before him. Come down, she said to him, and her eyes made it more a command than her voice did. Come down to him now. Don't make him wait. He did not answer her. Instead, he spoke to the ship. Don't fear, he told her. We are not the ones who need to fear, Vivacia replied. He had the satisfaction of seeing the woman's face go blank with astonishment. It was one thing to hear the live ship speak, another to stand close enough to see the angry glints in her eyes. She glowered scornfully at the woman on her deck. The vivacia gave a sudden shake of her head that tossed her tr carved tresses back from her face. It was a womanly display, a challenge from one man's female to another. The woman brushed back her br from her brow the short black strands that had fallen over her forehead and returned the figurehead's stare. For an instant, it shocked Wintrow that the two could look so so different, and yet so frighteningly alike. Wintrow didn't wait any longer, instead just jumps down and starts walking towards the pirates. So, why do you think Etta jumped forward in this moment? Why do you think she decided to take action? I think it's because of the phrase that she says, don't make him wait. She knows that he's dying, wants to get all of this foolhardy talk over with right because it's Kenneth's wish and Sorkor's probably explained that that he has his own live ship so stop wasting our times you're just a boy she doesn't understand live ships either so right stop posturing <laughs> this is Captain Kenneth's ship now that's fair yeah I guess her love for Captain Kenneth is pushing her in that I think for me I was a little surprised it happened mostly just because Kenneth, to our knowledge, hasn't said anything yet. It's all Saw Adar putting on this big show. And right. so for me as a reader, I was kind of like, whoa, she's real hasty. But I guess I didn't really think about the fact that Kenneth is actually dying and <laughs> she knows that. So even if Saw Adar is kind of playing into a theatrics and making this about, oh, a big show of Mr. Kenneth, sir, I will make this worth your wild she's like i don't have time for that <laughs> she's also the only one who takes initiative out of the crew without kenneth's instruction right because everyone True. else is so loyal to him and fears him so much right and loves him so much on their crew that they wait for instructions sorcor and all the the hands below that but etta often does things without kenneth asking which angers him in <laughs> when we read from his point of view but that's probably the situation as well that's a good point to bring up. I didn't really think about that either, that she is someone who acts without needing permission, which is different than everyone else. True. Even in this situation where they could have acted, they didn't. I guess that's kind of maybe showing the hierarchy of a ship and how when you're part of that, it's just ingrained into you maybe. I don't know. Either way... Wintrow is on his way over to Kennet now. He's not going to wait any longer. And on his way, he mentions that he doesn't even look at Saw Adar. And I think this like continues this trend of Wintrow has really become disillusioned with who Saw Adar is. 
And yeah, he says the more he saw of the man, the less he thought of him as a priest. Yeah. And I think it just is him really seeing down to his character and recognizing that this man isn't good. And it's also not worth his time to be associated with him. <laughs> right. And it really makes me think of Kenneth. Because I think Kenneth is the other character in the series who is really good at reading people and who sees through people's acts, even if sometimes it's almost too much and to a, a, a fault where he's maybe reading more into people than they're actually giving. But I think he can still see who people are underneath the facade that they put up. And here Wintrow is doing that with Saadar. He sees someone who isn't as good as he seems and is definitely not what he says he is. And Well, I, I think he is a priest. I think Sadar is a priest, but at this point, Wintrow thinks that, yes, he has fallen from that path. He shouldn't be viewed as someone to look up to, right? The less He's thinking of him less as like, oh, this is a priest, and I was studying to be a priest, so someone to hold in reverence or, you know, look for directions from. And right. more of someone, this is... Just little troublemaker guy. <laughs> right. I guess I should clarify. I think Sa'adar was a priest at some yes. point. I don't think he is anymore. And I think Wintrow's seeing through that. I, I think Wintrow's seeing through the facade of this is all about Saw and seeing that he's more self-centered and greedy and deciding that like that's somebody that needs to be watched and not somebody that yeah. needs to be my friend. And I think that's similar to how Kenneth views people as I think Sa'adar is tricking other people on board. And Kenneth and Wintrow are people who can see through that. But it's not even, I, I Sadar is such an interesting character, a little weird too, because I don't think he's very good at his power plays because as Wintrow describes the freed slaves, they're like cattle, they lost humanity. Sadar's the only one who's really talking. They look towards him for leadership because he's the one that took charge of the rebellion right and he mm -hmm. was a priest so he's good with words he was in a place where he probably spoke to people often so he probably has some charisma but people who actually lead are just like you're pretty pathetic my man <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so I'm glad that Wintrow can also see him in that light because i agree with you so he walks right past Sadar, not looking at him, because he sees through his facade, and walks straight to the pirates and starts addressing the pirate captain, who is the well-muscled man in bright, garish clothing. And he has dark eyes. Dark eyes and a, a scar on his forehead, so he's a former slave himself, and says, I'm Wintrow Vestret of the Bingtown Trader Vestrets. You stand on the decks of the live ship Vivacia, also of the Vestret family. But it was the tall, pale man next to the scarred man who replied to him, I am Captain Kennet. You address my esteemed first mate, Sorkor, and the ship that was yours is now mine. Wintrow looked him up and down, shocked beyond speech. Numbed as his nose was to the stench of humans, this man reeked of disease. He glanced down to where Kennet's legs stopped and took note of the crutch he leaned on on the swollen leg that distended the fabric of his trousers as a sausage stuffs a casing. When he met Kenneth's pale eyes, he noted how large and fever-bright they were, how the man's flesh clung to his skull. When Wintrow replied, he spoke gently to the dying man. This ship can never be yours. She is a live ship. She can only belong to one of the Vestret family. 
So right there, Wintro can even recognize that Kenneth is dying. He looks very bad. <laughs> but Kenneth, who does know something of live ships, although first-time readers through can only guess at what that is, and Wintro, of course, does not know, he wants to continue this conversation from the place of ignorance to feel out Wintro's bond with Fivatia, to see how much they care for one another, to see if there's any chinks in their armor, to maybe, you know, get his way to connect with the ship. Because he doesn't want to do this like Igrit did it and take over and hold it hostage, right? He wants his own live ship. Right, and he knows that doing so by force is the o- is only going to make things worse. Yeah. But clearly that is a way to breed the ship rebelling. Because, yeah, he wants to avoid the same thing that Igrit did. He wants to erase everything that Igrit did, so he wants to do it a different way. Right. And so he talks to Wintrow from that point of view, saying, this man claims he is the owner, indicating Kyle. You know, Kyle is not standing. Oh, he's still standing, excuse me, and manages to almost stand straight. Neither fear nor physical pain did he permit to show. He was a man who waited now, and he did not speak a word to his son. So Kyle is just blank face. This is all in my son's hands, who I hate. So I hate this situation. <laughs> so Kenneth's trying to pry in that at that relationship, see how much Wintrow knows, saying, yeah, Kyle claims he owns her. But Wintrow shapes his words with care, saying, he owns her, yes, in the sense that one can own a thing. But she is mine, and I do not claim to own her any more than a father can claim to own his child. Which I also took as a little jab at Kyle, because Kyle always claims, like, I own you till you're 15, right? right. I own your work. Also, not even just that, but also the fact that Kyle literally put a slave mark on his own son's face to True. own him. Yeah, and uh, and Kenneth points that out, saying, you look a little young to have children, so that doesn't make sense. But also, by the mark on your face, I would say the ship owned you. And then guesses correctly that I'd take it that your father married into the traitor family, but you are blood of that line. I am a vestrit by blood, yes. Wintrow kept his voice even. Ah, then we don't need your father, only you. Kenneth turned back to Sa'adar. That one you may have as you requested, and those other two. There was a splash and a trumpeting from one of the serpents. Wintrow looked starboard just in time to see two map faces tip the other Jamalian sailor over the edge. He went screaming until the white serpent cut his cry short with a snap. Wintrow's own cry of, wait, went unheeded. And Vivacia gave a wordless cry of horror and flailed at the serpents, but she could not reach them. Map faces were laying hold of his father, and Wintrow springs into action at Sa'adar, saying, you promised them they would live. If they worked the ship for you through the storm, you promised them they would live. Sa'adar shrugged and smiled down at him. It's not my will, boy, but that of Captain Kennet. He does not have to keep my word for me. You spin your word so thin I doubt anyone could be bound by it, Wintrow cried furiously. He whirled on the man who had seized his father. Set him free! And so once again we see Sa'adar's sliminess, kind of wriggling his way out of his own promise because, oh, it's not my will that they be killed, but Captain Kennet's will, when clearly Captain Kennet said, as you requested, Sadar, these three can be yours now. Right. He literally just said, you can have control of them. And the first thing they did was kill them. Like, 
Sa'adar, you are not keeping your word. This is you not keeping your word. That has nothing to do with Kenneth's wishes. It's so dumb. Yeah, and so we can see that Wintro read him correctly. But he's not getting anywhere with pleading to Sa'adar. Or the people who have control of his father. Exactly, because he's too physically weak. He knows he can't do anything to them. So he's crying out to Captain Kennet now, saying, Set him free. You have seen how the ship is about the serpents. If you throw one of her own to them, she will be greatly angered. No doubt, the pirate captain replied lazily, but he isn't truly one of her own, so she'll get over it. I won't, Wintro told him furiously, and you will soon discover that if you cut one of us, we both bleed. His father was struggling, but wordlessly and without much strength. The white serpent is trumpeting eagerly beside the ship, and Wintrow knew he had not the strength to prevail against those two men, let alone however many would muster to Kennet's command. Kennet, however, was another matter. Swift as a snake striking, Wintrow seized the pirate captain by his shirt front. He jerked him forward so that his crutch fell to the deck, and he must depend on Wintrow or fall also. The sudden motion wrung a low cry of pain from the man. The mate sprang forward with a snarl. But Winter warns him, back, and stop these men, or I'll kick him in that leg and spatter his rotten flesh all over the deck. So Etta cries out, wait, release him, talking about Kyle, to stop any pain to Kenneth. Right, and I do want to point out how in this moment, first of all, Winter is very quick-witted. He finds, he realizes yeah. the situation, he knows what is and isn't going to work, and he knows that the only way he can save his father at this point is if he threatens the person who is weakest, which is Kenneth. Right. And not only that, because even in this situation, you know, he's doing this because he doesn't want to let his father die because of who that would make him. That's what he told Vivacia. But even in this, he is keeping true to himself because even though he could have gone and hurt Kenneth immediately, he doesn't. He just takes takes away his ability to stand on his own. He's just holding him up at this moment. And yes, that did give a little bit of pain, but it wasn't overwhelming pain. It wasn't a purposeful, I'm doing this to hurt you pain. This was an incidental thing that happened. But I think it's really important to point out that even in this moment, Wintro is choosing to do the least amount of damage to get what he needs. And I think that's really important. And so Wintrow addresses Kennet after everything is kind of at a standstill and says, You burn with fever and you stink of decay as you stand here on that leg, one leg left to you. You may kill both my father and myself, but if you do, you will not possess my ship for more than a handful of days before you follow us down, and whoever you leave behind upon the vivacious decks will perish too. The ship will see to that. So I suggest we find a bargain between us. Captain Kennet lifted his hand slowly to clutch at Wintrow's wrists with both of them. Wintrow doesn't care, because at the moment he realizes he has the power to cause the man incredible harm, and maybe even kill Kennet from the shock of that. And Kennet knows that as well. Beads of pain sweat shone on the pirate's brow. For a scant moment, Wintrow's eyes were caught by the odd wrist brooch the man wore. A tiny face, like to the pirate's own, grinned up at him gleefully. It unsettled him. He looked up again at the man's face, met his eyes, and stared deep into their coldness. They returned his gaze and seemed to look deep into the core of him. You refused to be cowed. 
Well, what say you? Winchrow demanded with the barest hint of a shake. Do we bargain? The pirate's mouth scarcely moved as, in the softest whisper imaginable, Wintrow heard him say, A likely urchin. Perhaps something useful can be made of him. What? Wintrow demanded furiously. Savage anger rose in him at the man's mockery. An extremely strange look had come over the pirate's face. Kenneth stared down at him in sort of fascination. For an instant, he seems, seemed to recognize him, and Wintrow, too, felt an uncanny sense of having been here, done this, and spoken those words before. There was something compelling in Kenneth's gaze, something that demanded to be acknowledged. The silence between them seemed to bind them together. So those sacred words are spoken, the line that Igret spoke to Kenneth many years ago, that the charm now speaks to Kenneth. And in this moment, we have this sort of otherworldly feeling. And because we know the history of Kennet and a little bit of Igrit, this is the wheel turning. This is the path repeating itself over and over and over again. Yeah, what the, the, the fool talks about often. Yes. How time works. How in this world, the same thing just happens over and over again. It takes a catalyst to be the bump in the road to get the wheel off the track so that it can change and be better. And in this moment, we have that repeating of moments. And I think the only other time I've really felt like this and felt kind of like, oh, this is magic. There's something here is when in the last trilogy with Fitz and the Fool, they were on the road to the to find Verity and they were at the old rundown town when the fool stepped on a fence post and yeah whatever it was yeah it was like a skill stone wall or something yeah and it, he was in just the right spot and all of a sudden fool and Fitz were transposed into a different time when they were different catalyst and seer white prophet and they got to relive that moment of we've been here we've done this and Although this isn't as vivid and there isn't any actual changing of bodies and personality for a split moment, it is still that same sense of this has happened before and this is the path I'm supposed to be on, I guess. And I just love that that is done again. I think it's really cool. Definitely. There's definitely a moment here. And this is this is where Kenneth switches over from like, this is somebody that I don't know how to explicitly deal with but you know gotta maneuver around him because it's a live ship whatever i don't think he would have killed wintrow because he knows what a bond with a live ship is but different things would have happened with wintrow to now with the term speaking that and creating that bond between them in kenneth's eyes at least now kenneth's focused on wintrow and is concerned with him and takes him under his wing a bit in the future books as well Right. Yeah, this really does snowball into becoming something. And I think in this moment we have the catalyst, which is Wintro. And we know that because the catalyst that Amber was looking for was a slave boy with nine fingers, mm -hmm. which is Wintro. And so this is the bump in the road. This is the changing of the wheel. And I, yeah. And so I think that aspect is cool. I don't exactly love that this is the wheel that Wintrow has to be stuck in <laughs> and the like abuse and horribleness that came with that before and what comes later. But 
just the literary device of doing this is very neat. Yeah, for sure. And so this moment has taken a little bit of time, enough time for Etta to have snuck up and put a knife point to Wintrow's ribs saying, you know, you took too long. You didn't talk quickly enough. Take Kenneth gently, Sorcor. You missed your chance, boy. Now you and your father will die slowly, each begging <laughs> to be the first one to die. No, no, Etta, stand aside. The pirate managed his pain well, never losing his educated diction. He still had to take a breath to speak on. What is your bargain, boy? What do you have left to offer? Your ship freely given? I already have her one way or another, so I am intrigued. Just what do you think you have to trade with? And Wintrow says, a life for a life. And he speaks knowing that he doesn't quite have the skill to accomplish what he's going to suggest, but he suggests saving Kenneth's life. Doctoring him, healing him. I was a priest in training. And if you do, and if I save you, spare my father's life. No doubt you'll want to cut more off my leg for such a bet. His question was contemptuous. Wintrow looked up, searching the older man's eyes for acceptance. You already know that must be done, he pointed out to him. You were simply waiting until the pain of the festering would make the pain of removal seem like a relief. You have nearly waited too long, but I am still ready to honor that bargain, your life for my father's. Kenneth Swang's weakening, but considering. This moment to me is really important because I think along with the last moment of there's this weird connection and Kenneth now feels like this is somebody he can mold and bring under his wing. There's also this sense of Wintrow being capable. And I think this is where he feels like Wintrow is part of his luck because later he mentions to Etta that yeah. he lets him do this because of his, he's part of the luck. I think Wintrow being the only person willing to talk back to Captain Kennet and say, I don't care if you don't want to cut off your leg, you know it has to happen. Instead of the other doctors who, when Kennet pushed them and said, no, I don't want that, they said, oh, well, we'll put leeches or, oh, well, we'll try something else. It doesn't actually have to be cut off. Wintrow, who has way more to lose and way more on the line, is in front of him saying, you know this has to happen and that's what I'm willing to do. And so I really think that this is another moment, just right after the one right after the other of Kenneth feeling like this is somebody important and somebody he needs to have control over. Yeah, exactly. So Kenneth chimes in saying, it's a poor sort of bet, so we'll up the ante. We'll place your life on the line as well so that if I win by dying, we all lose together. You have a strange idea of winning, said Wintrow. Then you include your crew in your wager, Vivacious suddenly pointed out. For if you take Wintrow's life from me, I shall see every one of you to a watery grave. And that is the only bargain I offer to any of you. High stakes, Wintrow observes. Nonetheless, I accept them if you do. Kenneth says that he's scarcely in a position to shake hands on it. But he says, uh, basically agreeing. But afterwards he says, you do not try to make me agree that if I live, I give your ship back to you. And it was Wintrow's turn to shake his head, saying, you cannot take her from me, nor could I give her to you. That I think is something you must discover for yourself. But your word will suffice to bind me to the rest of our wager, and that of your mate and the woman. He looked past Kennet to the woman as he added, and if my father comes to ill 
from the slaves aboard this ship, I shall take it to cancel the bet. There are no slaves aboard this ship, Sadar declared pompously. Winter ignores him. He waited until the woman gave a slow nod. If you have my captain's word, you have my word, Sorkor added gruffly. So then he, he starts commanding, you know, clear the way to my captain's salon. I want Kenneth there. I want my father in Gantry's cabin because I'll see to his ribs after I see to Kenneth. Right. He starts like directing Sadar and the map faces who are like, you're not going to boss us around. Right. Wintro <laughs> is taking charge here. Yeah. And eventually Sorkor, with no one moving, Sorkor is like, well, if you're not going to listen to the boy, listen to me because that does need to happen. <laughs> Right. And it is kind of Wintrow's way of pushing the boundaries to see what he can do, what he is in charge of. Oh, excuse me. Sorkor doesn't chime in there. They no. do eventually mill and like move aside because it's Captain Kennet. Right. And his father is taken away. Yeah. To Gantry's old room. So this is when Wintrow decides to press his, his power and see where he's at. And then starts directing the slaves a little bit more, saying to clean up the deck and to scrub things out, et cetera, et cetera. Which is where they look at Sadar, who doesn't speak at all, just staring at Wintrow. And this is when Sorkor speaks up, like, those things do need to get done, so obey the boy or me. But, like, you're doing them. <laughs> right. And this is another moment where there's kind of a questioning of who's in charge. And I think this is important because... Sa'adar thinks that he is important and is the one in charge outside of Kennet, obviously. Yes, this is his power play. Yes. Just as this is Wintrow's power play. Right, but I think it is a big deal that the map faces are hesitating here. They kind of do want to just say, or do, it seems like they do want to do what Wintrow is asking them to do. That's a reasonable request, but they also know that they can't just listen to somebody else with Sa'adar right there. And so there is that questioning of looking to him to see what's going on. And ultimately Sa'adar's power is still taken away by Sorkor because Sorkor says, you know, listen to him or me, either way it has to get done. Let's go. And I think that's important too, because that Sa'adar's, pride stopped him from gaining anything in that moment because he could have said we'll we'll do this for now he could have of his own volition chosen to do that and make it seem like he's taking that power back but instead he kind of pouts like a child and after all the map faces have left and everybody's sort of doing what they need to do Sorkor says to Sa'adar if you can't figure out what to do I will figure something out for you. Get to work. Everyone's right. working. Exactly. Which leaves Sorkor and Wintrow alone there. And Sorkor approaches, or relatively alone. And Sorkor approaches Wintrow saying, You lived through laying hands on my captain once. It won't happen again. No, I trust it won't need to, Wintrow replied. But it was the woman's cold black eyes on his back that made his belly cold. And Sorkor says, I'll see you to your room, sir, taking Kennet from him. And Kennet is like, no, I need to address the ship and introduce myself to the ship first. Wintrow was very pleased at that, saying, yeah, I'll be pleased to introduce you to Vivacia. This is so weird to me. Why would Wintrow want to introduce him to Vivacia in this moment? I think it's he's happy because Kennet is treating Vivacia as a person, as someone with sentience, with feelings, and not just a ship, a wooden ship. But since when has Wintrow cared? 
I mean, he's seen the abuse for a while, but maybe since last night? I don't know. It's hard to say when it switched, but he still sees Vivacia as somebody to talk to. He's known he's known for a while throughout their talks that he, she has her own separate feelings, her own memories. She is her own person. He just didn't know if she was of Sa. So with his good feeling towards her, claiming her as his own, having someone afford that respect to her right away without having her be ignored once again, it's probably a good feeling for him. I suppose. So they make a very, very methodical and slow way across the deck with Kenneth in immense pain and trying to make it up onto the foredeck to visit Vivacia. And this kind of brings worry to Wintrow because he can now see just how bad off Kenneth is. Wintrow's heart sinks. He was a man held together by sheer will and sense of self. Should either falter, he would die. As long as he was determined to live, Wintrow had the power, a powerful ally in curing him. But if he gave it up, all the skill in the world would not prevail against the spreading infection. So things are getting more real now. His life, his father's life, everybody's on board's life is on the line. And Canada's way worse than originally thought and even when it was as bad as he thought before he wasn't sure he would be able to fix it and now it's much worse yeah and so they're at the foredeck Etta kind of shoes everyone else away to give them privacy there and captain kennett has made him his way over to vivacia where she just says captain kennett my lady vivacia he bowed to her not as deeply as a healthy man might have but more than a nod when he straightened, he returned her inspection. Wintrow watched uneasily for the man's nostrils widened, and the smile that curved his mouth was both approval and avarice. His frank appraisal flustered Vivacia. In an almost girlish response, she drew back and lifted her arms to cross her wrists over her breasts. Kenneth's smile only widened. Vivacia's eyes went very wide, but she could not seem to stop the smile that crept to her own face. She broke the silence first. I do not know what you want of me. Why have you attempted to claim me this way? Ah, my lady of wood and wind, my swift one, my beauty. What I w want could not be plainer. I wish to make you my own. So my first question must be, what do you wish of me? What must I do to win you? I do not. No one has ever... Obviously flustered, she turned to Wintrow. Wintrow is mine and I am his. We have both discovered that nothing can change that. Certainly you cannot come between us. Can't I? So says the girl who speaks fondly of her brother until her lover steals her heart away. Wintrow found himself speechless. Perhaps the only other person as flabbergasted at this interplay was the woman who had come aboard with Kennet. Her eyes were narrowed like a cat's when she stares down a hostile dog. Jealous, Wintrow thought. She is jealous of his sweet words to the ship. As I, he admitted to himself, am jealous at Vivacia's confusion and pleasure. So, Kenneth here is doing his best to woo his live ship, and he's liberally applying a lot of compliments, <laughs> and also asking directly what she wants, which really hits Vivacia to the core, because as she stumbles over saying and says, no one has ever asked me that before. What does she want? Right. And I think even more important after that, she makes the stance of 
Wintro is the one that's connected to her, and they've both discovered that that can't change. Not because she wants it to be that way or because she seems to have a strong... It doesn't feel like it's, oh, I love Wintro and he's the one that I'm connected with. It's, we've tried, we can't fix it. Wintro's the guy, sorry. Which is way different than her being willingly in this partnership or feeling like she wants to be in this partnership with Wintro, whatever their connection is. And I think that's also really important because it lets Kenneth know that there is an in. Yeah, exactly. And so she's blushing a little bit at all these compliments and at that insinuation of like, well, a lover could come in and steal you away from your brother, right? And so she's like, well, I'm, you, you can't be... My lover, I'm a ship, not a woman. Can't I? Shall not I drive you through seas no man would dare? Shall not we together see lands that are the stuff of legends? Shall not we venture together under skies where the stars have not yet been named? Shall not we, you and I, weave such a tale of our adventures that the whole world will be in awe of us? Ah, Vivesha, I tell you plainly that I shall win you to me. Without fear, I'll tell you that. She looked from Kennet to Wintrow. Her confusion was pretty, as was the sweetness of, of the pleasure at his words. You shall never take Wintrow's place with me, regardless of what you say, she managed. He is family. Of course not, Kennet told her warmly. I do not wish it. If he makes you feel safe, then we shall keep him aboard forevermore. Again he smiled at her, a smile both wicked and wise. I do not wish to make you feel safe, my lady. Despite his crutch and shortened leg, he managed to look both handsome and rakish. I have no desire to be your little brother. So, yeah, heavy wooing. Yeah, he's hitting all the right notes for her. Like you said before, uh, within the compliments, he sees that, yes, that bond with Wintrow is unshakable, right? There's nothing coming in between them. But he says, yeah, but I'm not your family, I'm here to woo you. I'm here to win you. I say that without guile. You know, I can love you. I can come to love you. And also, I'm not here to make you feel safe. We'll keep Wintro aboard if he does. That's fine. So he's playing on her her hopes that there could be something more for, for her out there, but also playing against keeping her safe from her fears of like, Wintro is not going anywhere. I will keep Wintrow here. It's fine. But you and I will have something else, something different, something more special. Right. And I think this is especially intoxicating to Vivacia because of how she has been treated up until this point. She hasn't been given a lot of respect. She hasn't been given a lot of personhood. She is just the ship that isn't doing what Kyle wants. And the ship that may or may not be of saw to Wintrow. Yeah. And even Gantry, who somewhat respected her, was just really afraid of her. It wasn't respect, really. It was more of fear. And here we have this person who's coming in saying, I'm going to woo you and I want you to have control. And especially if you look at this from a stance of Kenneth knowing how live ships work, it's even better because he's saying, you know, I'm not trying to take over the family role, family connection. I'm trying to make something new. And that's something that I think Kenneth is relying on his luck to have work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, But everything's prepped perfectly for him to step into this role. Yeah. Because in addition to what you said, Kenneth is the first person to come on board this ship 
besides Althea, or since Althea, that wanted to sail Vivacia, not just because she's fast and can make a profit with Kyle, or something that he lusted after for all of his life, not something because he had to, like Wintro, but he genuinely wants to be on board and be the captain of a live ship and create adventures and have a connection with that live ship. Right? This is someone that is excited to be with Vivacia from the first that they meet her, that they meet together. Not since Althea right. stepped on board last. And unlike Althea, Kennet can do something about it. Right. He has yeah. authority. He has the ability to back up what he's saying and back up what he wants. He is able to actually give that glimmer of hope because he has the power to do so. And Althea really didn't have that. So it's even a little bit better than when Althea did it because Althea's was more of a dream and this is a reality. I do want to bring up something about this scene before we get any further because I think what's about to happen is kind of a different subject. But in the start of this wooing, at the very beginning of them talking, Kenneth talks about, or there's Kenneth staring down Vivacia, and she specifically says, I do not know what you want of me. Why have you attempted to claim me in this way? And I'm wondering if when she says, why have you attempted to claim me in this way? It's because in that silent staring between the two, Kenneth has opened up his consciousness to Vivacia and tried to meet with her on that level the way that other people do to live ships. Like we've seen this with Althea and Ophelia and with Amber and Paragon, that it is not something that necessarily has to be a blood relation to be able to open yourself up to a live ship, but people who know how to open themselves in a way like Amber does because of the skill or like Althea does because she has her own live ship, they are able to put their feelings and thoughts into the live ship. And here we have Kenneth doing that. And I'm wondering if he is purposely doing that. And so her comment is about the invisible touching that Kenneth is trying to do. And we wouldn't know because we're in Wintra's point of view. So I don't think that's something Wintra would be privy to, but I, it's just a thought that I had that maybe there's a little bit more happening under the surface that Wintra doesn't know about. It definitely could be. uh, And it definitely makes sense of how you're explaining it. I didn't read it like that initially. I just meant it. I, I just thought it meant something like, why are you trying to claim me this way? Like why is a pirate trying to take over a live ship? Because we have, me and Wintrow have an immutable bond that can't be broken, that you can't get between. Why are you trying to claim me as your own? So I, I thought, because this was before like his, his continuation of the wooing, really. He like mm-hmm. laid a couple compliments down, but she's like, why are you trying to claim me this way? Because it's not going to work. So that's what, how I read it first, but I could definitely see that other way working. However... The one thing that kind of sways me against that thought is, and unless Kenneth really is in control of his thoughts and how this connection works, is I feel like he wouldn't want to touch minds with her to hold back some of his own motivations. 
but we know it's possible for people to do that in the connection. Right. I, that's why I'm saying I don't know how much Kenneth knows of this connection or how well he is in control of his own mind because he probably hasn't touched a live ship for 30 years. I would argue that he has a pretty good control of it. I think it's been less than 30 years, but also he grew up on Paragon and did share in a very meaningful way right, his consciousness. Yeah. And so I think he would have a really good understanding of what that means, even if he wasn't actively practicing that skill, because it's something he did know. I, I think and it actually is 30 years, though. He was only like seven or eight. He's, there's no way he's over 40. Yeah, we talked about that before. In the beginning of the book, he's over 40. He's like mid to early 40s. But that's still like 13 when he killed Igret. That's that's, that's my not guess. Yeah. Old enough to be a captain because he becomes captain afterwards, right? He bums around and takes he's part of a crew for a little bit first and then takes over that crew. I still feel like 13 is a really young age to then Maybe. I mean, it, you know, it could be 25 years or 20 years then. But I guess. I don't know. I just. Yeah. It doesn't matter, I guess. It's but yeah, he is in his 40s. Okay. He's like about 40, give or take, you know, probably three years. Okay. Well, anyway, I think it's possible. And I think especially because before she asks that, she can't help the smile that goes to her face. Like something, it feels like something is going on. And maybe it's just nobody's ever looked at her the way that... Kenneth right. has, yeah. who knows, but I and, don't know. We know that she can feel some barest hints of like emotion and things like that. Right. And thoughts from people. So maybe she's, maybe he is reaching out. Maybe she's feeling just what his motivation or barest forefront emotions are. I don't know. Yeah. Some sort know. of detection is going on. Yeah. So that, that was more just my point of like, we know it is possible for people who know what they're doing to reach their consciousness forward towards people. And even if they're not reaching, I mean, I guess with Wintrow, he had didn't had done it accidentally before with Vivacia, but he's also family. So it's a little bit different. Like right. he wasn't even close to her and he could do it on board. Um, but that was family. So I won't count that fully. Um, but it is something that can be done. And so I wonder if he was trying in that way. And I don't think he like continues to try. I think he just quests out like that. And she's like, whoa, what are you doing? And he like pulls back and was like, listen, I'm just trying to woo you. So, it's an interesting thought for sure. Yeah. But in this moment, he's finished the wooing. Yes. And he stumbles and bows his head a bit because he's in pain. And she before anybody else can speak, says, You are hurt. You must go and, sp and rest now, Vivesha exclaimed. I fear I must, Kenneth concurred humbly, that Wintro suddenly knew that he was more than pleased at the ship's reaction. He even wondered if the man had deliberately sought it. So I must leave you now, but I shall call again, shall I? As soon as I am able. Yes, please do. Her hands fell away from her chest. She extended one towards him as if to invite him to touch palms with her. The pirate managed another deep bow, but made no move to touch her. Until then, he told her, fondness already in his voice. He turned aside to say in a huskier voice, Sorkor, I shall require your assistance yet again. And as they walk off, Vivesha calls after them, saying, Be careful with him, and when you have finished there, I would borrow some of your archers, I'd like these serpents discouraged. Sorkor turns and asks, Captain, should I obey? 
and Kenneth smiles, even though his face was moist with sweat. Give the lady her due. Court her for me, man, until I can charm her myself. And with a sigh like death, he folded suddenly into his mate's arms. And Kenneth has a strange smile, Wintrow notes, as they march off to the captain's cabin. So this is one acting a little bit by Kenneth's, uh, Kenneth's mark. I'm sure he is in incredible pain, but also gauging the response as Wintrow can see through Kenneth's act mm-hmm. and notice. Vivacia falls for it because, well, she's newly awakened. She's kind of enamored by this man already. It's flattered her heavily, kind of assaged some of her fears away about the potential connection. And now he's giving her someone, he, he's listening to her as well, saying like, yeah, obey the ship as well because she's do that, right? She's also a part of this crew. She's, we're, we're sailing on her. So yes, Sorkor, listen to her as well. So also kind of just more solidified in that, yep, yeah, I'm being listened to now with Captain Kennet on board. Right. Yeah, and there's a sense of, it feels like she's coming into her own almost under the somebody looking at her with respect. And she is. It's kind of crazy because even though this isn't a very long scene and this doesn't happen for a super long time, this is her first encounter with Kenneth. The fact that it does give her something is pretty telling of how horrible the treatment was before and that she just needed that guidance and a competent captain to respect her. Right. And that is not something that Kyle Haven gave her. And also we again see Wintrow seeing through people in seeing this act. And obviously he's not as good as Kenneth and he is able to be swept away by Kenneth's guiles, but he is seeing this and noting that there's probably a little bit more going on than meets the eye. And Vivacia is loving it. And that feels weird. Yeah. So they all walk away, leaving Wintrow kind of alone with a figurehead up there. He says he's basically more free to move about the ship than he has been for weeks now. Vivacia, he said quietly. She had been staring after Kennet. She broke her amusement to look up at Wintrow. Her eyes were wide with wonder. They sparkled. She lifted a hand to him and he leaned to let their palms touch. No words were needed, yet he spoke them anyway. Be careful. He is a dangerous man, she agreed. Kenneth. Her voice caressed the name. I wanted to point out as well, when they were walking away, she lifted up an arm to let Kenneth touch the wizard wood, and he ignores that. Yeah. And that's kind of what sparked my hesitancy of like, maybe he didn't reach out because he doesn't want to touch her and link their minds and maybe see his motivations. But it could be that he did reach out and she acknowledged that, but that that touch, that connection would deepen that link and really let them see each other's minds and kind of didn't want to do that. Right. I definitely agree he's not touching her because then she would see the dishonesty in this moment. And I, but I think the way to take my theory, like keep my theory alive is to say that he did try to reach out with her, but was not successful because she's not, she's not accepting that type of connection. And so with her saying, no, he's withdrawn back into himself. So at this point there is nothing for her to read. And she reaches her hand out 
and that's where there would be something to read. And he knows that. And yeah. even if it was through the mind, I think hand touching is a little bit more in depth. Right. Anyway, so. Well, for, for a moment, that's it on board of Vivacia. Excuse me, with Vivacia and Wintrow speaking. Now we move on to Kenneth's point of view as he's waking up in the captain's cabin. Right. And some time has passed because the ship is in motion now. Yes. So he is waking up and recognizing that the captain's cabin he is in is actually a beautifully ornate cabin and finally something worthy of a captain. Yeah. With all the descriptions that Kenneth has had of various captain's cabins, this is finally one fit for himself. <laughs> right. Um, I do want to point out that when he does come through, he, uh, come to, he says that things have obviously been strewn about because of the tiff on board, but Ed is already starting to clear it. And I do want to say, we know that Kyle is not a neat and tidy person. And so I think it might be entirely possible that nobody has actually been in here and that's just what it looked like because Kyle lived yeah, there. Yeah, probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to... May or may not be true, but I, I like to think that actually nobody was in here before. It just looks like that because of Kyle. Kenneth asks after the boy captain. Atta spin, spins to his sound, uh, the sound of his voice, says that he's gone to take care of his father's ribs for a bit. But he wants you to rest as much as he can before he tries to heal you. And she says, I do not understand how you can trust him. He must know that if you live this, live, this ship can never be his. Nor do I understand why you will allow a mere boy to do what you forbade three skilled healers even to think of in Bull Creek. And this is where that conversation that we had previously comes in. Because he says, because he is part of my luck, the same luck that has, been given, that has given this ship to me so easily, you must see this is the ship I am meant to have. The boy is part and parcel of that. He almost wanted to make her understand, but no one must know of the words the charm had spoken when the boy looked so deeply into his eyes. No one must know of the frightened Kennet. Excuse me, no one must know of the bond forged between them in that instant, a bond that frightened Kennet as much as it intrigued him. He spoke again to keep her from asking any more questions. So, we are underway already. So Kenneth want like he this is a secret something that he's kept inside for so long. And this is how we also kind of know. We see these little hints throughout his points of view all the time that he cares for Edda. There's little things that pop up here and there. It's very deep down buried and with his basic basically forging of himself, he doesn't have all of his emotional capabilities, <laughs> we'll right. say. But this is also another way. This is something that he's kept hidden for so long. He almost wants to make her understand why Wintrow is so important to him now. Because of those words. Because of that bond that the charm forged between them. But at the same time, he cannot let her see that because that's too vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. So he shifts the, the conversation over to uh, Bull Run Creek, is, which is where Sorcor is taking them. And... Kenneth asks, what do you think of my live ship? Etta responds, she is lovely, and I am already jealous of her. I do not think we shall get along easily. She is too strange a thing, neither woman, nor wood, nor ship. I do not like the pretty words you sprinkle so thickly before her, nor do I like the boy Wintrow. 
And as ever, I care little about what you like or dislike, Kennet told her impatiently. What can I give the ship to win her save words? She is not a woman in the same way you are. When the horse still looked sulky, he added savagely, And were not my legs so painful, I would put you on your back and remind you of what you are to me. Her eyes changed suddenly from black ice to dark fire. Would that you could, she said gently, and disgusted him with the warmth of the smile his rebuke earned him. So, <laughs> so we have Kenneth trying to be very disgusting and mean to his whore, Etta. And Etta's like, well, we're kind of in love. We've exchanged wonderful words together. So this is just some banter back and forth. <laughs> right. Just a crude joke. And ugh. <laughs> I I hate that like that's something it's it's fully because I can see his thoughts that this is so icky but the fact that she is in this space where she thinks that like oh he loves me and that's just him showing his true love and whatever I get a special side of Captain Kennet but also it's so frustrating to read because he literally asks her opinion and then when she gives her opinion he's like why would I care (laughs) why did you ask then (laughs) you could have said nothing she wouldn't have said anything unless you asked and you asked so you do care he's so proud of his live ship he wants everyone to praise it (laughs) the worst now we move on to Wintrow once again right and he is Going to Gantry or going into Gantry's cabin to help his father, he talks about how the cabin is disheveled and how Gantry's things have obviously been rifled through. The door, the lock on the door is broken. Somebody had obviously kicked down the door without even trying the doorknob first, but luckily it still closes and stays closed. So there's at least some sort of privacy for Kyle here. And he tries to tell his dad, you know, hey, it's me, Wintrow, I'm here to help. And his father isn't really responding. Yeah, so he puts his fingers on the pulse of Kyle, who jerks and shudders awake. And Wintrow has to say comfortably, or comfortingly, it's only me, it's all right. Yeah, it's only you, he conceded. But I'll damn well bet it isn't all right. He looked terrible, worse than he had when the slaves were trying to feed him to the serpent. Old, Wintrow thought to himself. He looks suddenly old. He had come in here intending to clean his father's wounds and bind them. Now he felt himself strangely reluctant to touch the man. It was not dismay at the blood, nor was he too proud to do such tasks. His time in the hold tending the slaves had eroded those things away long ago. This was a reluctance to touch because the man was his father. Touch might affirm that link. Wintrow faced what he felt squarely. He wished with all his heart he had no bond to this man. I feel so bad for Wintrow in this moment for a lot of reasons, but I also think especially because of how broken this bond is with his own father and this moment where he he has put everything on the line to save his father and even that isn't enough. His father is a person who thinks that dying to prove your bravery is better than bargaining for your life. Right. And they are just so different of people that there is no reconciling that. And at this point, Wintrow doesn't even want that anymore. It's just broken beyond repair. And yet he still is willing to help Kyle. 
And I think that really speaks to his character and who he is as a person that even this man who by all accounts does not deserve help from Wintrow, at least in my opinion, is still getting help and he's still doing it well to the best of his ability. And I don't know, it's just so heartbreaking that that isn't enough. Yeah. And so he's trying to offer Kyle everything that he can. You know, do you want some food? I got some fresh water here. Fresh water's in, you know, short supply, but I have what I can. His father's like, no, don't worry about me. Don't you have some pandering to do to your new friends? And Wintrow explains, yeah, Kenneth's resting right now. I'll heal him later. And Kyle says, so you'll truly do it. You'll heal the man who's taken your ship from you. To keep you alive, yes. His father snorted. Bilge, you'd do it anyway, even if they'd fed me to that snake. It's what you do, cower before whoever has the power. Wintrow tried to consider it impartially. You're probably right, but not because he has power. It would have nothing to do with who he is. It's life, father. Sa is life. While life exists, there is always the possibility of improvement. So, as a priest, I have a duty to preserve life. Even his. His father gave a sour laugh. Even mine, you mean. Wintrow gave a single nod. May as well get to it then, priest. As it's all you're good for. He would not be baited. Let's check your ribs first. As you will. I hate this interaction. And I hate more Kyle just fixing the narrative to fit whatever he wants to be mad about Wintro for in the moment. <laughs> yeah. The whole, you grovel to whoever's in power. Um, decidedly he doesn't because that's the whole reason you hate him so much. You had all the power and he never groveled to you and Gantry had all the power. He didn't grovel to Gantry and Torg had all the power and he never groveled to, go- to Torg. So in what way has he ever groveled for power? It Like, I just, he has never done that. And even when the ship was at danger, he wasn't groveling to Saw Adar because he had power. He was telling Saw Adar what to do to keep them alive. In no, like, there is no instance of him doing that, but Kyle is so delusional in this need to make Wintro be the only one at fault that he is willing to bend reality to his will to make it that way. And it's, so frustrating to read. And yet Wintrow still is trying to heal him, do his best for that. Right. And working really hard to rise above the bait that his father is dangling in front of his face to start a fight. Right. Which also like, dude, be the adult for five minutes, please. You are the adult in this situation and you are trying to start a fight with a child. Grow up. Ugh. Anyway. Kyle's looking pretty rough and uh, worse for wear. Probably broken ribs. There's a boot print in his side from when they were kicking him when he was down already. But Wintrow only has water and rags because the ship's medicine chest has gone missing. He's doing his best and still wrapping and uh, giving the ribs some support. And when he's done, Kyle speaks and says, You hate me, don't you, boy? I don't know. I do, his father said after a moment. It's in your face. You can scarcely stand to be in this room with me, let alone touch me. You did try to kill me, Wintrow heard himself say calmly. Yes, I did, 
I did at that. His father gave a baffled laugh, then gasped with the pain of it. Damn me if I know why, but it certainly seemed like a good idea at the time. Wintrust sensed he would get no more explanation than that. Perhaps he didn't want one. He was tired of trying to understand his father. He didn't want to hate him. He didn't want to feel anything for him at all. He found himself wishing his father had not existed in his life. Why did it have to be this way, he wondered aloud. You chose it, Kyle Haven asserted. It didn't have to be this way if you had just tried it my way, just done as you were told. Without question, we'd all be fine. Couldn't you have just once trusted that someone else knew what was good for you? Wintrow glanced about the room as if looking about the entire ship. I don't think any of this was good for anyone, he observed quietly. Only because you muddled it. You and the ship. If you both had cooperated, we'd be halfway to Chalced by now, and Gantry and Mild, and all of them would still be alive. You're to blame for this, not I. You chose this. They finished in silence. I so sincerely disagree with this. I don't mean that to say that I think Wintrow is completely blameless and Wintrow had no hand in what happens. I think that's not true either. But I think to say that Wintrow never tried to do what was asked of him by his father and that the only reason that any of this happened is because he and the ship refused to cooperate, that they would be where they were supposed to be if they hadn't been so obscenely out of line. I, I think that's a bunch of nothing because they wouldn't have been any further where they would have been. They still would have been at this point, whether or not Wintrow would have listened with or without him running away. Because if you remember, his father never stopped to look for Wintrow. He was out buying slaves. So they couldn't have left earlier. They couldn't have done more. His father was doing the bare minimum to search for him. That did not stop. And Vivacia being afraid and upset didn't add time to their journey, didn't stop where they were at this section. And I don't know, it just how he treated his son up until this point is what caused the actions that happened to happen. It I like it honestly to me stemmed from Kyle and there is no getting out of that. He just doesn't want to admit that he has any fault in this and he wants to pretend like this is all Wintrow's fault. Nothing I could have done would have changed this outcome and it's just not true. Looking at it from Kyle's point of view, he desperately wants Wintrow to be a different person than who he is, right? Right. So if that were true, if he had just a nameless, faceless son and a live ship who cooperated the whole time, this wouldn't have happened, right? (laughs) Because the son wouldn't have run away. They wouldn't have, like, I don't know. It's just the whole thing there. And yet, at the same time, Wintrow and Vivacia are who they are. There's that break, that that trust that was broken between them because of the conversations and who Wintrow is and his naivety and that sort of navigation and what Kyle put him into and made him do. So yeah, Kyle is obviously looking for someone to blame in this other than himself, but I kind of can see where he's coming from in this. Cause I like, we had this discussion in the first trilogy. I don't believe in fate in these books. Right. And I and, do. And it seems like you think this was fated to happen no matter what. 
which, you know, maybe, but this is just kind of a fundamental difference between how we think of the <laughs> events in this series and where they go. So I can see Kyle's point of view. I know he's just looking for a place to lay blame. I know it. And in this case, in the midst of this story that is being told, everything he's saying is not correct. But as an outside reader, <laughs> like if there was a different story, yeah, but definitely Kyle, <laughs> if they just played along with everything he said, sure. I, I just don't. How, though? I mean, I guess if he wouldn't have ran away, the only difference would be that Wintro wouldn't currently be a slave. I don't think that there's any world that Wintro wouldn't have gone down and helped the slaves anyway. You don't think so? No, I think that's who he is as a person. I think I think because of Wintro and Vivacious, like them running away, or Wintro running away, driving that wedge in between him and Vivacious' relationship, and Vivacious ousting him from their connection, pushing him down below decks, it really made it's, it was a revelation that I don't think it would have come to Wintro until much later on. And I think that rebellion with him going down below, only wanting to talk to Gantry or, you know, doing whatever really pushed the rebellion and everything kind of spark off when it did. And I, I think that stems, I mean, ultimately, yes, you can push it further and further back, but I think that incident stems from them breaking that bond, that connection, that relationship and Vivacia pushing Wintro away. So if they were different people is what I'm saying. Right. That wouldn't have happened and maybe he wouldn't have been driven below and, you know, all of this would have been happening with, you know, the moral conscious and everything like that. I guess if he was a different person, then he probably wouldn't have been able to connect with Vivacia in any way. If he was more Haven than Vestrit, Vivacia wouldn't have accepted him. So I don't think they would have even been able to leave the dock. by blood, so I think so. Yeah, I don't, I get, that's, but I mean, I think if you're saying he has to be a different person, then the other person he would have been is a haven. And if he's a haven... He's still part of Vestrid Blood, though. But it still saying. has to be a connection with the ship. Right? And Blood seems to have an automatic connection. But I don't think that's fair to say. I think... I don't know. <laughs> we're but, just speculating at this we're point. We're speculating, but I'm saying he isn't very havenly. And yes, it is by Blood. But like, I don't think if Malta went on the ship and was there alone, there would be an automatic connection. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it just happens for anybody who has the blood. I think it has to be the personality and the blood. Yeah, I disagree with that. You think Malta would have a connection with Vivacia? Yeah. They're very alike. They're very alike. Malta and Vivacia? Yeah. Very vindictive, very stubborn. Sense of adventure. Malta just wants to, like, have fun and go see places. I would fit perfectly in with Vivacia, who just kind of like is newly awakening and wants to go on adventures that Efren brought her on. <laughs> she would make Vivacia feel horrendous for being naked on a boat. Like very first thing. That would be the first <laughs> thing that she did with her connection. Be like, ew, your boobs are out. That's not very ladylike. <laughs> like I don't in no world. I just don't know. <laughs> I, I fundamentally disagree. Well, just. Everyone, let us know what you think. Would Malta and Vivacia get along or have a bond together if Wintra wasn't the one being on board? You what could, do you guys think? Let I us would, in. We have uh, an email at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can you know, message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, comment on any of our posts there, YouTube, whatever. 
I would argue maybe Selden. Mm, he's too much of a nobody. He's just like a blank face, just waiting for Rainwild Chronicles to come in. That's what you want Windrow to be for this to have worked. <laughs> so either it would have connected because they're blood or not. No. Oh, okay. Whatever. Anyway, tangent aside, Wintro doesn't even know how to respond. Yeah. Much like I don't know how to respond to your. This is like the idea. like the tenth time that they're just like, oh, the gap is too big. We can't reconcile. But it's just I, for me, this is just an overplayed point. Yes, it's driven in more and more, and Wintro's just kind of like solidifying it in his mind rather than just trying to convince himself that there's room. But. This is like the tenth time that the that a scene yeah. has ended between the two of them, and Wintro's like, "Okay, well, it's over." But I think this time, Wintro hasn't tried to see it from Kyle's perspective. He's not trying to figure out why Kyle is the way that he is, True. or get some sort of point to find to be sympathetic for him. He's like, you know what? He just is that way, and I don't care anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing here. Even though it is a little tired, it is important that for once. Wintro's like, well, that's just who he is anyway. And Kyle's playing on Wintro's insecurities and what he's been thinking because Wintro has had that moral dilemma, right? He's had the, I'm to blame for all of this because what happens if I free the slaves? I'm saving people who are enslaved and I think that's wrong. But by doing so, I doom the whole crew. But if I lock back up the slaves, I'm locking them up for life. I'm dooming them to a lifetime of servitude. So he's had in his head this moral conundrum arguing back and forth, and his father just hits the nail on the head with that. And we even saw it earlier in this chapter as well with him talking to Vivacia, like, I need to save my father. And the desperation he had to save Kyle's life to Kenneth or Sadar, he was quick thinking and fast acting to save Kyle's life. But that's because of what it meant to him and his faith and who he was. He said it to Vivacia. I can't let them kill them to kill Kyle because of who that would make me. So this is all just kind of playing on what Wintrow is thinking and, and where he's coming from in this conflict and his kind of characterization and his development is coming from. And it's that point that Kyle makes. Like, you're to blame for this. And I think that's what Wintrow's kind of getting over in this. He just doesn't respond to that bait. He doesn't try to understand where that thought is coming from in Kyle's point of view. Wintrow is trying to move on. He did the best thing he can. He's still going to be tortured over some of those, you know, the dead crewmates, the dead friends that he had. But he's living in the present now. He's moving forward. Yeah. Those are my thoughts on, on then analyzing what's going on in Wintrow's head, at least. That's fair. But that's where we leave Wintrow. Yeah, and we mm-hmm. join in with Vivacia to see what she's feeling about the whole thing and about Kenneth. She starts by talking about how the crew that is handling her right now is the most competent crew that she's had since Efron was last on her deck, which... I would like to say points to Captain Kyle not being a very good captain (laughs) because he had the same crew as Efren Vestret and still couldn't do as good of a job. Um, I guess not exactly the same because he did bring in Torg and Gantry and gave them positions and kicked some other people off and demoted others. But either way, 
Yeah, there's Jamalian sailors and everything as well. But that didn't happen until they were getting slaves. So that's completely different. He had a run with Althea with Efren's original crew. So the fact that Efren was the last person who competently crewed this ship. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. No, I just was (laughs) pointing out that I think that points to Kyle not being a great captain. Yeah, definitely. He's uh, not amazing on that end for sure. And so she has some sort of relief around that, thinking that, you know, I don't have to focus so much on my survival anymore. And she can feel the crew and the pirates and some of the slaves helping to clean her up a bit and make her into herself again, make her feel like herself. They're starting to scrub things, even though the bloodstains won't disappear. She'll leave them at it until they decide that it's not going to work. They're slowly removing the chains and the fetters from in her hold. And slowly, she's becoming herself once again. It was the closest she had felt to content since the day she had been quickened. Content. And there was something else she felt. Something unsettling. Something much more fascinating than contentment. She extends her awareness and tries to feel what she can of Kennet. She was not aware of him as keenly as she was of Wintrow, but she could sense the heat of his fever, feel the uneven rhythm of his breathing. Like a moth drawn to a candle flame, she approached him. Kennet. She tried the name on her tongue. A wicked man and dangerous. A charming, wicked, dangerous man. She did not think she liked his woman, but Kennet himself. He had said he would win her to him. He could not, of course. He was not family. But she found that there was great pleasure in anticipating his attempts. My lady of wood and wind, he had called her. My beauty, my swift one. Such silly things for a man to say to a ship. She smoothed her hair back from her face and took a deep breath. Perhaps Wintrow had been right. Perhaps it was time she discovered what she wanted for herself. So we can still see that she's feeling good about being competently sailed. She's feeling good about having the slaves removed from her hold and vestiges of that horrible time being removed from her and all the chains kind of being reverted back to a proper ship, a proper live ship. And yet through that whole thread, there's that undercurrent of can it was good for me and I'm anticipating what he's going to do next. It's going to be very nice to try and then ends it with Wintrow's right. I need to see what I want for myself. And it kind of ends like almost on a sense of foreboding. <laughs> yeah, know. it definitely shows the distance between Wintrow and Vivacia in this moment, because on Wintrow's end, he definitely feels like there's a deeper connection and like they finally have this solidarity and that they finally have figured out what was missing. And on Vivacia's end, she's like, I finally found out that I do not need to be the one or need to be pursuing Wintrow. I don't need to have him in my life necessarily, maybe a little bit. And it's not that she doesn't care about him. It's just that she is now wanting to be more independent, just like Wintrow told her she should be when he was angry. Yeah. And so there is that distance. And I think especially leaving it there is kind of like giving this feeling of how is their relationship going to continue on next book? Because obviously they're not on the same page. And that's a little bit worrisome. Yeah, definitely. But also, I guess, after your draw, your bomb drop of Vivacia and Malta being similar, I can <laughs> see that here in her primping and preening and 
being excited that a guy is giving her attention and knowing that it won't go anywhere, but being excited to let him try anyway does feel very Malta. And that's all I'll give you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that concession. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Please let us know what you thought of this chapter, where you think it's going, and your theories on the book as a whole, because we're coming up on our last chapter next week, next episode. So if you have thoughts, please let us know. Email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or comment on any of our posts there. We're also on YouTube at isfitshappy, and you can visit our website for any other links, isfitshappy.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, see you guys next week. Now we're going to talk about some of the things that you guys have brought to our attention. So we're going to start first with an email we got from listener Keith, who is talking about episode 147. And this is about Vivacious foreboding since um, what we call a premonition of Gantry being in danger. Um, Whenever Wintrow asks Gantry to help come down below deck and take a sick man up on deck. Yeah. When she's like in her head, like I told him, like I told you to get off the boat. Did I not? And he's like, yeah, you did. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very, very spooky, I guess is the best way to describe it when that happens. And Keith is arguing that it's not really actually a premonition that Vivacia is putting forward, but more of a sense that she's getting from the boat because she is a live ship and can kind of feel everybody's emotions. Yeah. Even with that severed or pushed away connection with Wintrow, she'll still be able to feel general emotions and probably has a better grasp of what he's doing and feeling than they both realize even with that severed connection. So Keith says, because of that, and because she's less naive than Wintrow in those instances of with all of her past lives, probably feels there's something off with Sa'adar's, you know, words, his plan, his pushing on, this is what Sa would want, let the man die. And with Wintrow coming up and saying like, hey, let this man go below deck. And she's just like, I, I told you, yeah. you need to get off the ship, right? But then like, with that thought, she also says, Gantry, I want you to do this. Right. Because you asked if you could do anything for me. Please do this. Like, I don't, those two don't mesh in my head. Yeah, it's really interesting. I like Keith's point of view of saying that there is the chance that she is feeling that sense of foreboding or just the restlessness of the slaves and them concocting a plan right now, even if she can't tell exactly what they're concocting, she can tell something's up. And so that sense of like, I told you, you need to get off the boat. But yeah, I agree. There is outside of that. There is the whole scenario of she's the one who tells Gantry to go down there. Yeah. She like kind of forces him. So I don't know. Does she do that? Because then Wintrow is closer and she's overwhelmed with his sense of needing to do what's right. And so, and there's still that little hint of 
wanting to agree with Wintrow all the time, you know, maybe that's where that comes from. So even though there's a sense of like something bad's going to happen, it's kind of like, but also Wintrow's here and needs this. And I agree. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to reconcile. It's an interesting thought. And I still don't fully believe that she has, you know, premonitions or future things. We kind of waved it away as like, this is the she who remembers stuff because the others use the others. She who remember <laughs> to see the future. So I, it's kind of a hand wavy. Does she actually feel something or not? Cause she also felt foreboding for Gantry before they left Jamalia. So it couldn't right. have, that's not an in the moment emotional response or reading from her. So I'm not really sure how to uh, go back one way or the other. I think what Keith says is accurate. I think she does feel more of Wintrow and she is less naive and less easily swayed than Wintrow in certain situations. But I don't know if that applies to this situation personally. I don't know. Either way, I like it a lot. So thank you, Keith, for bringing it up so we could think about it. Definitely. Sticking on episode 147, we're also going to talk a little bit about a comment from Cookie Bowl, which is talking about Saw Adar and why Saw Adar is the way that they are. Yeah, I think we I think we made some comments about like Saw Adar is not a great person or whatever in that episode. So, yeah, and Cookie Bowl put forward that. They think Sa Adar was a good person who was changed by slavery. Definitely makes sense. Yes. Um, they said Wintrow constantly thinks what would have to be done to him to make him a mindless animal like slaves are. Wintrow doesn't have to live the life of a regular slave, and he just has a tattoo itself and then sees how the other slaves are being treated, and that demoralizes him. Yeah, so Sa Adar actually living through it and having to go through that could maybe make him change his faith or lose his faith or just, as we say, use his faith as a cudgel to get what he wants and more power. Right. And especially seeing that with Wintrow through the lens of Wintrow hasn't even lived slavery yet. Yeah. And he hasn't really, he's preemptively upset about the connotations of having a slave tattoo. He doesn't even know the real horrors from living it. And I guess obviously later when he's on the ship, he starts feeling it a little bit more, but it's still not to the extent of a normal slave. And it's not to the extent that he would have if he would have been sold to anyone else. Right. So I think that is a good point and does make Sa Adar a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, like uh, what's the word? Um, I feel bad for pitiable. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it makes him a little bit more pitiable, but I think also he's an adult. <laughs> and I right. guess we don't know when Sadar... makes Sa-Dar, him a sympathetic character, I yeah, think. Yeah. I don't know when Sadar was taken into slavery, or for what reason, for that matter. But he was with map faces. Yeah, he was with map faces. We don't. I guess it doesn't really say if he has multiple tattoos on his face. Yeah. Or no, was he with map faces? No, he is later. He is, yeah, he, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, I got the mix up. He's like the leader of the map faces later. He was in the forward hold, which is why Gantry was concerned, because there was mm-hmm. sickness down there in the forward hold with other skilled people. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we don't really know what his status is, how long he's been doing this, but he clearly, this isn't new, and he clearly has lived through something. And yeah. so I think it's fair to say that that is why he has changed, and mm-hmm. it is sympathetic to know that, like, 
in this moment of him being helpless, he chose to go to faith and lean on his faith. You know, like that's like, I get that. And I get, you know, taking that as a comfort and trying to comfort people around him and be a leader and be a beacon of hope and use hope to rally people to his side. However, he still ultimately chooses to use that to do evil. (laughs) Yeah. Not even necessarily evil, but he's just so desperate to get justice and kill Kyle Haven. Like that's his end goal. Kill Kyle Haven and take over Vivacia because he views the ship as his for being freed as a slave on that uh, on board that ship. Right. That's kind of like his whole existence in the upcoming books. Yeah, and I think I think knowing that is important because I I don't know. I I think we are really hard on Sadar and it's really easy to be hard on him because he is kind of a cartoon villain. Yeah, he's just like um, a C-tier villain in this yeah, whole thing. I don't know. Very cartoonish, very easy to hate on, but I think reminding us that he wasn't always a slave and that he was a slave at one point. Yeah. Really changes motivations and really changes who he was originally, I'm sure. Even though we don't know who he was originally, we he probably wasn't like this. Yeah. So thanks for those comments. Yeah, we really appreciate that insight. Then we also have a message from Chloe on Instagram. And among other things like uh, discussing Kyle and Wintrow, there was something that really caught my attention, at least in this message, about Kenneth's charm yes. that I really want to talk about. That intrigued me. And Chloe says, to me, the charm is trying to get back at Kenneth and doesn't think that the charm actually likes Etta. So Chloe is saying that the charm isn't doing anything or all of this out of the kindness of its heart, because if it was, it would warn Etta. It wouldn't say sweet nothings to attract Etta to Kenneth or anything like that. You know, and then Etta goes on to wear the charm after Kenneth dies and never, ever talks again. You know, like there's there's so many things that point to it's not in this for nice reasons. It just thinks that Etta is a nice person, but it's doing this mainly just to get back at Kenneth. And I thought that was a very interesting distinction to make. Yeah. And Chloe's whole. Yeah. Like you said, it's to get back at, back at Kenneth. And Chloe also mentions that it's just more messing with Kenneth and making his life a little bit more irritable anything and I actually really vibe with this (laughs) I like the idea so much and I totally forgot that after Kenneth's gone the charm doesn't talk ever again I totally forgot about that and I like it from the standpoint of well Kenneth's not around to mess with anymore so I don't need to talk yeah the, the charm is a very interesting creation because I feel like I don't remember the exact point, uh, and I think it's a future book, but it hints that it remembers more of its dragon memories than other live ships seem to do. Yes. Just like remarks that I wasn't always just you. You know, I'm not just you. It said that in this book. Did it? Okay. Yes. So it, it hints that it has more knowledge of that way. It has almost vivacious like premonitions where it's like, if you don't keep Etta close to you, you're going to die and things like that. And mm-hmm. sending away Etta later on, because Kenneth sends Etta away to Marietta when um, he and Vivacia and Wintrow are on board Vivacia. And Althea comes on board and she, and he sends Etta away and the charm like speaks to him there, like sending Etta away, you're going to, you're going to regret that. And it's just a bunch of things that are just a little weird about how the charm speaks and acts and what knowledge it has. 
Mm-hmm. And I definitely agree. It's a great point to make that because of what the charm does to tie Etta to Kenneth, it can't just be doing this out of the niceness of its heart for Etta. But I do think the charm really does like Wintrow and Etta and sees them as good people and therefore even more despises Kenneth for what he's doing. I don't know. This theory of the charm just doing stuff to mess with Kenneth and doesn't actually care about other people, I kind of like. And I would almost change it. It made me have a different idea. So what if the charm actually does really like Kenneth and knows that the only way to get Kenneth to trust him is to not show the love? Kenneth mm. doesn't know how to accept love or how to yeah, show love. And so by constantly mocking Kenneth and still helping him, it's showing its own love. It's mirroring Kenneth's style of love by being rude. So weird. Because it also has Kenneth's, like all of his memories and emotions of a full realized Kenneth. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I just like think, what if the, the charm actually does like Kenneth a lot and that's why it does everything in its power to help Kenneth gain control. It warns Kenneth whenever bad things are going to happen. It tells Kenneth who to trust and who to take on. It makes people trust him more. It says things in the right moment to get them to like him. Maybe the charm does like Kenneth and it doesn't talk anymore because he's so sad about the loss. (laughs) Or, you know, because of that bond that he had with Kenneth and Kenneth was the only bond that he could have. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not really a thing anymore. The charm just kind of loses its potency, its memories, just like Paragon. Oh, no blood relation, Yeah, you mean. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I feel like there are explanations for that, but the charm itself is so intriguing of a character. Yeah. Or a plot device, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, the charm does actively help Kenneth, and the things that the charm does actively helps Kenneth's plan come to fruition. So the motivations of the charm are very enigmatic. Right. But I do like a different viewpoint, and I like the idea that maybe the charm is just messing with Etta to mess with Kenneth. That is also a very fun idea, and I like that a lot. Yeah. Whether or not it's true, thank you for bringing it to our attention, Chloe. Next, we're going to talk about a correction. Though I guess I'm not actually sure which chapter this was for. Not necessarily a correction either, but like an explanation because we were wondering. Yes, I guess it was... It was, I think it, it's hard to tell what chapter because it was also in an after the episode discussion, I believe. Yes. We were talking about how to, how elderlings were created and what actually constitutes an elderling and things like that. And Ant messaged us on Instagram because they just finished Rainwald Chronicles and can answer some questions in that. Right. Which is amazing. So we have a little bit more fresh knowledge and book knowledge coming in to answer some of the questions. So the whole problem was, is we can't understand why Malta is an elderling or rain and how, or Selden or Selden and just kind of how this book's elderlings are created versus next book. Yeah. Because they talk about having to ingest things in the rain wild chronicles. Right. Like blood or a scale or whatever. Yes. So we were wondering how then these people become elderlings when they don't ingest anything. And so Ant says 
that it's a little bit of a retcon because um, when Centara hatched, the yeah, and it, it breathed. It was, it's explained in Rainwald Chronicles, apparently. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so when Centara hatched, and Malta was there, and I guess Rain was there, they breathed in the essence of the dragon from the cocoon breaking open from a dragon being reborn. So that was the thing that they ingested, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Not sure how Selden fits in because Selden was definitely not there. Right. And I don't know, like, were they not elderlings before Centara hatched then? Or, or is Ant talking about Tintaglia and just typoed Centara? Cause Centara is the, uh, the one that Timera pairs up with. Right. So I feel like either there's a typo and we're not quite grasping what it says, or there's a time jump in here that doesn't quite work with the lore that Robin Hobb sets up. Because Ant says, as you were saying, when Sitara hatched and they breathed in all the essence of dragon that was around and ingested that stuff, and that's how the three of them became elderlings. So I don't know if that's... It's, it's definitely a typo. Okay. So Tintanglia, when Tintanglia hatched, hatched from like the underground chamber or whatever that they were in. Yes. Yeah. The breathing in is what they ingested. But again, Selden was not there. Yeah. So he could not have breathed anything in. Or he, what was he there? No, he was at home with Kefria. He sees them when they first come down and can talk to them. He's like immediately enamored, but he is not in the rain wilds when this happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first time. Yep. So maybe in the books, there's a lot of things in the Rainwild Chronicles. Wait, that's not what we're in right now. No, we're in Live Ship Traders. In (laughs) Rainwild Chronicles that are completely different to Live Ship Traders, like Kefria not existing and Malta being sisters with Althea instead of niece and aunt. So maybe in that book, they're trying to, again, retcon and say Selden was there. But I am like 99. No, you're you're correct. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) percent sure yeah so but ant is saying that there was some ingestion of when tintaglia hatched there was some like cocoon duster basically that malta and malta breathed in right malta i'm pretty sure malta was the only one there when she was yeah yeah anyway but ant does say that rain is an elderling and was changed by tintaglia because basically kind of piggybacking at least i think off of what i said before of how he already had an established connection with her because the Rainwild people live on those cities and are getting changed in general because of the proximity. But Tintaglia herself claimed him as well. And that's what made him an elderling because the changes already started. Sure. But then Tintaglia is like, I will guide your changes. And that's what makes you an elderling. Right. And it's said in the Rainwild Chronicles that you live among the places we lived. You use our things. So you begin to change, but unguided, the change brings harm rather than beauty or something to that effect because they couldn't find the exact quote. But there is direct talk with a dragon talking about how technically the people of the Rainwilds are also elderlings, but they're not chosen by a dragon. It's because of the proximity. And so... Yeah, which makes sense to me. That's what I thought. And I guess technically that means they're not elderlings. Elderlings are when the dragon guides you and is like has chosen you to represent them. Mm -hmm. So I'd argue they're still not elderlings. They just... Oh, yeah. we I never thought that Rainwild's people were elderlings. But yes, I think that's just... Yeah, they're exactly what you said. Yeah, just clearing that up that 
they have the capacity to become one and they have changes because they started the elderling transition without a dragon to guide. And so, yeah, I think that's really important to know. And that is a really good refresher of how that happened and what the changes are made. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that conversation. I said I would be looking at Malta to see how she ingested something or whatever. Yeah. So that kind of clears up that response. I'll look forward to that scene. But it does make me want to relook at Rain to see if it's just what I thought and it's just the connection was already there. And then Tintaglia chooses him and that's how he becomes the elderling. Or if he actually does breathe in something as well or gets something. Yeah, that's a good point. Because maybe, maybe being living on those cities first bypasses the need. But right. then why does Taimara and all that stuff? Because their dragons weren't fully dragons yet and didn't know how to guide changes without that like inexorable link between the two. Maybe that just because they weren't fully grown. They weren't fully aware of their memories. That could be. And silver. And then when they actually have that exchange of essence, that's when like that physical bond can form instead of a Tintaglia fully realized full memory dragon can be like, I choose you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, right. With Selden. And I guess you could argue that perhaps Selden does ingest something later off screen, right. so to speak. So he could have, because he was chosen by a dragon. So maybe yeah. she does give him something and maybe she gives something to rain again off screen. Yeah. Like there's no, it's something to look at though, at least yeah, something to see if there is a scene that we get to be privy to where it happens. But, but hopefully that's, that's my future thought for the difference between Tintaglia and the Rainwild Chronicle dragons. Right. And hopefully we didn't bungle that too much. So Ant let us know if we yeah, exactly. read that wrong and did something <laughs> explained bad. But it's good to have the refresher and to know what we're looking for in the future. So yeah. thank you for that. And then finally, we're going to end with a kind of lighthearted, funny comment from Jonas. We received a message saying, can you imagine Robin Hobb listening to the podcast and then sending in all the answers to our musings? It would be awesome, but also such a mood killer. We would all be like, maybe this, maybe that. How about? And she'd say, nah, it's this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first of all, Robin Hobb, if you are listening, Welcome. Thank you so much. Don't be afraid to to write in and answer our questions. Maybe don't write in because I don't know if I could cope with the pressure. But second of all, Jonas, you're so right. Like it would be like it would take a lot of the mystery out of the world that she created because let's be honest here, we're all fans, but she did leave a lot of open-ended parts to it. Right. That can just get filled in with whatever we think of. So Right. And I as much as I love Robin Hobbit and I would love to hear her answers and know what she thought when she was writing this, I absolutely would appreciate any of those answers and I would take that. It also would a little bit ruin the fun because I think one of the most fun aspects of doing this podcast and reading this series is that we get this community where we can be like, okay, here's a thing that isn't fully explained. Let's all guess. And like, as a team, try to figure right. out the answer. And I really love that aspect about these books. And it's one of the things that keeps me interested in continuing this podcast is seeing people's point of views is seeing the things that maybe I miss reading through because I just thought that it was concluded or didn't realize it wasn't concluded. And so I don't know, like it would be really cool. And don't get me wrong, Robin Hobb, if you are listening, absolutely correct me on anything I'm doing wrong. But also 
I do get a lot of joy out of us kind of getting to just put our tinfoil hats on and <laughs> scribble our own endings and in the end of the book. So that is something that brings me joy. <laughs> Thank you, Jonas. Thanks, Jonas. And thanks everybody who writes in every week and anybody who wrote in that we didn't talk about. It's always so fun to see what you guys have to say, see your theories, see who agrees agrees with me, who agrees with Luke. And I'm really hoping that this week we got a lot more agreeing with me. (laughs) (laughs) She turns it into a competition. You know, it kind of is. Um, (laughs) No, it's always so fun to hear your guys' point of view. And I always look forward to seeing what you guys bring to us next week. 